It's time for the What in the Podcast. Many theaters, particularly Broadway theaters, have given us some of our some of the greatest stage performances ever witnessed. Some of the greatest actors have performed on these stages. But something else that these stages give us and these theaters are stories about ghosts. Tonight we're going to talk about uh, several haunted Broadway theaters. And we're going to throw in a few extra down the road for just for good measure. So enjoy our theater talk. And welcome to episode 90 of What in the Podcast. Welcome to the What in the Podcast with your hosts, Kent Whittington and Adriana Mito and Tracy Lynn Hernandez. Hello and welcome to What in the Podcast. I'm your host, Kent Whittington, as usual. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the, what's unusual tonight is that I am flying solo. Adriana is out sick with a fever right now. She's got the flu. So she's upstairs resting comfortably, hopefully. And Tracy's out with a kidney stone. So she's not able to do the podcast tonight as well. But hopefully they feel better soon. We wish them both well, of course, and speedy recovery. So we can see them next week. Or hear them as this case is, because it is a podcast. Um, Before we begin, though, I wanted to talk about... uh, last week's episode. Last week we did a seance with Karma Wilder. It was a lot of fun. We actually had four separate, five separate sessions actually, and uh, got a lot of interesting stuff. Now the part of it I really want to talk about is when we encountered Rebecca. If you listen to the podcast, Rebecca was a spirit probably around the 19th century. Uh, We actually got involved through our seance into a seance in the past. It was like we time traveled. Um, but anyway, as we're doing this particular part of the seance, Karma, who's our medium for the night, she is uh, describing the scene. And at one point, she repeats three times the words bright light, bright light, bright light, bright light, like that. A few moments later, you hear a voice on the recording whisper back, bright light. And um, that was interesting because no one in the room made that noise. No one said those words except Karma the first time, but not not the whispered one. Uh, we've been getting a lot of voice phenomena like that lately. Um, we've had it say we've had something say hi at the beginning of an episode and at the end of another one, uh, and and. It's very strange at the beginning of the episode when you hear that high voice. I hadn't even started talking yet. The very first thing you hear is high. And then um, the prior episode before we did the seance, you heard it growl at one point too. 
Um, none of us made it. I had blown a raspberry Adri because of some things she said, you know, being cute, being funny. And as soon as I do that, you hear a like kind of like that, but just real guttural and, and weird sounding. Now we've got bright light on top of that. So we have four EVPs. So what I'm going to just do is every time I catch one of these, I'm going to isolate it, compile it. And once I have enough of them, I'm actually going to uh, put them together. Like I said, I'm going to compile them and do a recording session of just the EVPs for the show one night. And hopefully you guys can, can hear them and you can enjoy them. Maybe give me some feedback. Uh, I would appreciate feedback, actually, if you have had an EVP, maybe, or something spoke and you were maybe the only person in the room or something like that, or no one was talking and you hear something, let me know. You have our email address on, on the podcast description here. Uh, I can repeat it again for you. It's whatinthepodcast at gmail.com. Send me your story. If you have a recording of your EVP, send that along too. I'd love to hear it. Also, before I begin tonight's story, uh, I'm trying to put together a uh, UFO, well, what's the best word? A, a UFO symposium or something like that, a conference, if you will, uh, with some of our past guests. And if this works out, should be a lot of fun, but I need your support. If you've had a UFO encounter, be it just seeing the lights in the sky or a saucer shape or cigar shaped craft, up to and including the point where you may have actually boarded a ship, I'd like to hear about that as well. Send that to me through the email address, or you can, e I would even allow you to message me directly at Kent Whittington on Facebook Messenger. And we can actually talk if you want. You can tell me your story. I can record it for you as well. Or, you know, if possible, we could even get you on the show for this for this uh, conference. Something I'd like to try out. We're going to have, um, I, I haven't confirmed anybody yet, but there is some interest with some of our past guests. If you don't know who they are, there are people like Aaron Montgomery, uh, Terry Loveless, uh, recently John Yost has uh, expressed some interest in doing this. So if you're among those people who have seen the Little Greys or been an experiencer of some sort, let me know. Anyway, let's get on with tonight's episode. Tonight, I wanted to talk about real-life ghost stories behind Broadway's haunted theaters. Um, I've never been to New York, but the theaters, everybody's familiar with the theaters. And each and every one of these theaters has had some sort of paranormal experience. Uh, one of the most interesting phenomena regarding these theaters is the consistency of reporting from one show in one season to the next of paranormal encounters. Certain theaters, like the Amsterdam and the Belasco, almost always produce ghost stories, while others, like the Schubert and the Beaumont, almost never do. It's almost as if some theaters really had ghosts and others did not. 
The appearance and activities of the alleged ghosts also maintain a remarkable consistency. Now, that's not to say that these, these theaters don't have hauntings or stories behind them. They all do, like I said, because some are not as consistent as others, but they still exist. So tonight we're going to talk about them. First one I'm bring up is the New Amsterdam Theater. Now, the New Amsterdam Theater has had several hauntings, ranging from the unaccountable noise to actual poltergeists or knocking ghosts, if you want, that sort of encounter, to the mysterious opening of doors and cabinets or the flickering of lights. Sometimes there's a strange cold spot in the room, a colored mist, a floating orb in a photograph, an inanimate object that moves without anyone touching it, there's actually uh, video footage that exists of tables and chairs moving about on their own. Uh, this is a theater in the UK. It's not uh, not anything to do with this, but things like that occur. I recommend finding the video if you can. Um, there's also the echo of disembodied voices as well. Sometimes you may see a wispy manifestation, a contorted face in a mirror or window. More rarely, you see a, a full human figure, sometimes ghostly white, or sometimes in full natural color. Even more rarely, the figure speaks or touches somebody. The actors and crew at the New Amsterdam Theater have experienced nearly all of the above at various times. And the alleged culprit is well known to them all. Uh, they say it's Olive Thomas. Now, Olive Thomas was a uh, one-time Ziegfeld Follies chorus girl. She is by far the most active ghost on Broadway, manifesting so frequently that Damon, Dana Amendola, sorry, president of operations for Disney Theater Group, has placed photographs of her at every entrance to the theater so workers can greet her when they arrive for work each day, which they believe keeps her mischief to a minimum. Now, Olive was a chorus girl in the 1915 Ziegfeld Follies on the New Amsterdam main stage and Ziegfeld's subsequent midnight frolics at the more intimate New Amsterdam roof on the top floor of the same building. She was on her way to Hollywood, where she made a handful of silent films and married Jack Pickford, the uh, ne'er-do-well brother of superstar Mary Pickford. On a trip to Paris in 1920, Jack revealed that he had contracted syphilis, and she likely had it as well. Way to go, Jack. What happened next is up for conjecture. Official reports say Olive accidentally swallowed an overdose of Jack's medicine, mercury bichloride, which is poisonous in large quantities. But, you know, one has to wonder how she could have accidentally emptied the entire blue bottle of pills into herself. Olive died two days later, and her body was brought back to Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx for burial. But then an odd thing started happening. Workers at the New Amsterdam began telling friends they had run into Olive backstage, which they said was impossible because Olive's dead. But she appeared periodically throughout the 1920s, but then became quiet during the decades when 42nd Street went into decline and the theater was underused. However, reports began picking up again when the Disney Corporation bought the theater in the mid-1990s, and began an ambitious restoration. Construction workers began reporting that their off-limits work area was being invaded by a woman carrying a blue bottle. The reports continued after the theater reopened with King David and the Lion King in 1997 and have continued since. 
Amendola became not exactly a believer, but certainly less of a skeptic when he was touring the old Amsterdam Roof Theater in the mid-2000s when it was being converted to office space. As he passed below the stage, he suddenly and distinctly heard the sound of tap dancing on the boards above him. Climbing quickly to stage level, he found he was alone. Technically her landlord, Amendola has become a keeper of the Olive Thomas flame. Among other things, he clocks reports of her appearance. Early reports of Olive's appearance described a young woman wearing a sash and carrying a bottle of pills who would sometimes speak. Strangely, people in various eras who didn't know one another would imitate her voice in exactly the same way. In the early Disney era, Amendola said a night watchman at the theater resigned on the spot after reportedly witnessing a woman cross the stage and disappear through a solid wall. Olive often appears in the trap behind what was once the stage of the New Amsterdam Roof Theater, the space where Amendola heard the mysterious tap dancing. The space is now used for storage, but employees report seeing a woman there, or sometimes a disembodied part of uh, feet climbing a staircase. During previews of Aladdin, Amendola said a female replacement conductor who had worked on Mary Poppins and knew about Olive was getting ready in a dressing room, reading from an email from the conductor. Amendola said she spoke out loud to Olive. Well, Olive, I'm back again, and I'm a little nervous. I just wanted to introduce myself again and ask if you could please give me some good luck. Then she mused aloud. I wonder what the Follies girls would have thought of a, a female conductor. And just then, according to the conductor's email, four of the round dressing room bulbs flickered on and off for a few seconds and then stopped. The bulbs were all new, having just been replaced for the new show. It was like a wink. She was signaling that she was fine with the idea. Shortly after the opening of Aladdin in 2014, an audience member came up to one of the ushers during a performance and asked if she could have a booster seat for her child. We don't like to interrupt a show, so we waited until the intermission and came to her with a booster. <clears throat> Excuse me. But we found she already had one. When we asked where she had gotten it, she said a lady at the back of the theater had gestured to where they were. Now, we don't have a woman at the back of the house who does that in the middle of a show. We checked and none of the staff had done it. So you can take, so you can take that how you like. But it was kind of freaky. Amandola said that if there really are such things as ghosts, and if the New Amsterdam is indeed haunted by one, he's happy about it. We embrace it. She's never violent, always playful. She kind of embodies what we're all about here at Disney. We're in the business of happiness, and to have someone from so long ago acknowledge that she's pleased makes us feel like we're doing the right thing. However, Amandola said Olive is unpredictable and doesn't perform on cue. She doesn't appear on Halloween, for instance. When people try to find her, they can't. She tends to appear just at the moment we forget about her, when we're busy putting in a new show or putting a new office in, when there are changes happening. Nearly a century after her death, Olive Thomas is one of the best known of all the Ziegfeld girls, the subject of film books and at least a half dozen websites. And that has, a, that has created a problem for the staff at the Ziegfeld. Amandola said they get asked about Olive all the time. 
which is not a problem, but many of Olive's craziest fans have tried concealing themselves in corners of the theater, hoping to stay after it's closed so they might catch a glimpse of the glamorous ghost. Amadillo said his staff now does a special sweep of the theater each night to catch stowaways and escort them out. That's kind of funny. Not something I would do, but definitely, uh, <laughs> you know, if there's a chance, who knows? So that was it for that. Let's go on to the Belasco Theater now. Another Broadway's named ghost makes his home at the Belasco Theater, which makes perfect sense, as it's believed to be the spirit of one-time owner, Broadway impresario, David Belasco, once known as the Bishop of Broadway for his oddball habit of wearing a priestly cassock. Belasco was part of the great 19th century tradition of theater owners slash producers slash playwrights. He built the current theater that bears his name in 1907, but after, only after a decade as a successful author of dozens of passionate melodramas, two of which achieved immortality as source material for Giacomo Puccini's operas, Madame Butterfly and La Fentuila del West. Velasco loved theater so much, he spent nearly every waking hour at the theater, writing, managing, or directing his plays. He also spent every sleeping hour there since he made his home in an apartment above the theater on West 44th Street. He spent so much of his life in that building, it's small wonder that he seemed to be spending his death there too. He's one of the most alive-looking theater ghosts. No wispy ectoplasm for him. He appears much as he did in life, tall with tasseled hair and wearing the cassock and clerical collar that, he was, that was his lifelong affection. Sorry, his lifelong affectation. He was known during his life as the Bishop of Broadway. Those who have glimpsed him but don't know his story nevertheless have nicknamed his ghost as the monk. Though Louis Blotto has pointed out, there was nothing monk-like about his lifestyle. Shortly after his death in 1931, he began to show himself. Actors stepping out on the stage unawares would suddenly notice a lone dark figure sitting in the balcony watching them intently. This ghost had a voice, too. He would walk right up to the actors, shake their hands, telling them that they had done a fine job at a, at a performance. More than one actor filed complaints with the house manager that an old man dressed up like a priest has pinched their bottoms. The uninitiated were often horrified. Veteran actors look forward to these meetings, seeing them as a good omen. And Belasco isn't alone. The spirit known as the Blue... Uh, let me try that again, sorry. A spirit known as the Blue Lady, who appears as an icy cold blue mist, has been seen on the theater stairways and dressing rooms. Reports include sightings of a mysterious and ethereal blue specter. One story maintains that she is the spirit of a showgirl who died after plummeting down an open elevator shaft. She may also be the source of an odd blue glow witnessed by one actress, who said that her dressing room bathroom was suddenly steeped in the light while she was in the midst of a shower. A version of the Blue Lady legend says that some believe she was a girlfriend of Belasco. If that's true, maybe she's drawn to the theater by Belasco's libertine romantic ways. Yet another tale, as reported by New York City Ghost, says that this figure could also be the shade of a dancer who worked in a rather seedier capacity when the theater housed a gentleman's club known as the Follies. Clearly, no one's entirely sure who the Blue Lady is but enough people have spotted her to bolster the belief that someone else is lingering around the Belasco Theater other than Belasco himself. 
There are reports of the sound of raucous parties being held in the Belasco apartment, complete with the sound of feet dancing the 1920s era music. When workers got upstairs to see who has broken in, they found the apartment empty, its dust undisturbed. Um, Playbill took a video camera up to Belasco's apartment in 2010. Uh, they were one of the few media outlets ever granted permission to do this. Uh, the apartment, ghost or not, would rent for millions if they ever put it back on the market. By the way, there's no plans to do so. The video is a tour of the whole refurbished theater. You're a chance you might be able to find that on YouTube. I'd check it out. Um, Melissa Erica, who played Mina in Dracula the Musical, reported that Belasco does indeed haunt the theater. My dresser Kathy saw him walk into a mirror the other day. She thinks he lives in the mirror in the wall outside my dressing room. One night I forgot my coat and I had turned out the lights in my room. I turned back to get my coat in the dark and someone, perhaps Mr. Belasco, turned the small pretty table light on for her to see her way. She said it was spooky. As I opened the door to leave, as I was walking out, someone closed the door behind me. I didn't touch it, but watched it move. Getting into the spirit of their supernatural musical, the cast of Dracula celebrated Belasco's 150th birthday that year with a cake and sang happy birthday to him. During the run of Passing Strange in 2008, Daniel Breaker, in an interview uh, one evening, he said that one evening he was putting on his makeup in his dressing room mirror when he saw an old man with white hair sitting behind him, silently watching him. When Breaker turned around to demand that what he was doing there, the man, who resembled nobody working on the show, was gone. Breaker reported the incident to the house manager and was told, you just saw David Belasco. Dominic Brewer, who appeared in Twelfth Night and Richard III, wrote, we've not spotted Mr. Belasco or any of the theater's reported spooks to date. But with the white makeup several of the cast wear for Twelfth Night, along with the eerie gliding of the female characters, you'd be forgiven for thinking you'd spotted a ghost backstage. However, we have had strange happenings on stage. One evening, the candles on one of our six hanging candelabras completely burnt down, probably twice as quickly as all the others, without any perceptible draft or obvious external influence. An unsolved mystery. Kurt Belasco house manager Stephanie Wallace said that Belasco has been completely quiet in the years since the 2010 renovation. <clears throat> Excuse me. To tease him out, the creators of Hedwig and the Angry Inch actually wrote Belasco into the script. Each night, Neil Patrick Harris and his successors asked if anyone in Box B had seen the ghost, but there were no takers. Nevertheless, Wallace said, I can tell you that the front door of my office especially locks itself from time to time, and I know it isn't me doing it. The processing of commercial information is complete. Back to the show. Sorry, folks. I think I need to apologize at this point. I'm starting to sound a little nasally. Uh, I am prone to allergies. Hopefully I haven't got Adri's flu bug. Uh, I don't feel feverish or anything like that. Just a little stuffed up. Please bear with me. Anyway, let's go on to the next theater. We're looking at the Richard Rogers Theater this time. Uh, the theater was built in 1925 and originally named Channon's 46th Street Theater. Theater was leased to the Schubert's until they purchased outright in 1931. 
the Schubert's maintained the theater until 1945, when it was again taken over by new management. The theater would change hands three more times until finally being purchased in 1981 by the Nederlander Organization. The Nederlanders renamed the theater after the late, great Richard Rogers in 1990. During the run of In the Heights, Louis Salgado claimed to have seen the ghost of a small child just off stage during a show. In 2010, Bianca Camacho wrote, There are reappearing red lipstick smudges in the ladies' room. They get painted and wiped, but inevitably return. Stall doors open by themselves. Dressing rooms have strange sounds, and things spontaneously fall off shelves in one of them. After hours brings bizarre howling sounds. Chandeliers moving, the sound of people walking. Jimmy, our doorman, armed himself with a baseball bat one such evening. Guess he wasn't going to take a f- he was going to take a few of them with him. Then three different people told me about the redheads. Ralph sees her in box B about 2 a.m. Beverly saw him in mezzanine row H. Cast member Tony Chiroldis has twice felt the presence of his mom, an actress, and also at times a redhead. None of these people knew the other stories. Our beautiful red theater must be a beacon for them. I myself, during a company meeting in the house, saw a door open fully and close slowly all by itself, but nervously dismissed it till I heard these stories. However, I was assured that these are benevolent beings that, like musicals, as nothing bad ever happens during those times when music fills the Richard Rogers Theater. The theater is now home to Hamilton, which has several scenes of ghostly characters speaking from beyond the grave, so I bet, I bet they're getting a lot of fun out of that. So that's pretty much it for uh, for that particular theater. Like I said, not all these have a huge amount of hauntings but or stories to tell, but, you know, they're, they're kind of fun. Anyway, let's get on to the next one. This is the Eugene O'Neill Theater. Donna Lynn Champlin appearing there with Patti LuPone, Michael Severus, and Merwin Ford and Sweeney Todd in 2006 reported, We believe there are at least two ghosts at the Eugene O'Neill currently home to the Book of Mormon, one male and one female. During previews, things would randomly fall from the upstage prop shelf, sometimes dangerous things like gardening shears, when no one was remotely near it. Actors' hair gets tugged every once in a while, and they have heard their characters' names whispered in their ears on stage. There's a strong smell of lilac, sometimes downstage left. My whistle disappeared from my bloody lab coat pocket, which never leaves the stage, and was found down in the basement in the dead rack of clothes. They only found it weeks later because they moved the rack and it fell to the ground. Patty's dressing room has doors that open and close on their own. She also thought she had stepped backward onto her friend's foot, so she said, excuse me. Her friend said, what for? Patty turned around and her friend was a good two feet away from her. Merwin Ford said, I set up the cot to take a nap between rehearsal and a show and asked out loud for a wake-up call. Sure enough, at 6.30, I was awakened by a slap on the bottom of my shoes that almost sent my head crashing up into the bottom of the counter that I had placed my cot under. No one was in the room but me. Imagine that. So let's move on to the Stephen Sondheim Theater which was actually built on the site of the old Henry Miller's Theater. So that gives you an idea of its age and 
you know, it's history. I mean, it's an old the it's an old theater to begin with, and, and gets torn down, and they build a new theater. I'm rambling. I apologize. Let <laughs> me get into it. Kevin Duda, who played Neil Sedaka in Beautiful, the Carol King musical, wrote in the spring of 2014 that he had stayed late one night at the theater, walked up to the stage door, and realized that I had forgotten something in my dressing room. He says. I noticed the old Henry Miller sign, which hangs over our security desk at the stage door. As I returned to the elevator to go back downstairs, I murmured under my breath, wow, I wonder what Henry Miller thinks of his sign being relegated to the stage door. And the elevator bounced and stopped. I was stuck. I screamed for about five minutes and finally Adolf, our head of security, came to my rescue and pried the doors open. I have never, I, I have never said Henry Miller's name in this theater again. That's pretty much it for that one. It's, it's kind of funny to hear. Um, take it or leave it as a true story. You folks decide. This is your show. Enjoy it. Let's go to the Gershwin Theater. Ghostly appearances tend to occur mainly in the old theaters, built before 1930. But the 1971 vintage Gershwin seems to have picked up some paranormal activity as well during the run of the witch-ridden musical Wicked. Actor Michael Corey Rose wrote... According to sources in the know about these things, we have three ghosts. Drew, a.k.a. Dennis, is the only one we know by name. The other two ghosts, who are regularly seen, haven't been named, but one dresses in a 19th century blue suit and the other wears a white t-shirt. Rose is not the first to record supernatural manifestations at the Gershwin. In 2012, Jonathan Warren reported, Nathan Pett got tapped on the shoulder before his front of house monkey flight one evening. When he turned around, no one was standing near him. Later, when he told people about it, Kevin Huckle mentioned that he had had the same experience throughout the years in the same location. It's rumored and believed to be the ghost of the Gershwin. And in 2010, boy, I cannot talk, I apologize. In 2010, Jason Viarengo related stage manager Jason Daunter and ensemble member Eddie Pendergraft were standing on stage left and happened to look up thinking they saw a swing performer watching the show. Then suddenly that person disappeared behind the curtain. The person they thought they saw was actually only a few feet away from them on the stage. So little sightings here and there, nothing very dangerous or spooky, just head scratchers mostly. So let's do the Imperial Theater next. In life, Broadway superstar Ethel Merman was possessed of a legendary personality and a powerful commanding stage presence. With her unique, arresting voice, she captured attention on film and stage, including her appearances at Broadway's Imperial Theater. According to Haunted Histories in America, some people who have witnessed odd goings-on at the Imperial believe that it's Merman who's opening and closing doors without a visible person moving things around. It just might be that Merman's spirit is still hanging around a theater where she garnered plenty of critical acclaim, as some suspect. Or maybe she just enjoys messing with people, which I kind of tend to believe. Knowing what I know of Ethel Merman, she is a character, and I could see her just doing this just to mess with people because she did this when she was still alive, too. She did stuff like this. So though the Imperials traditionally believed to be haunted by Merman, she hasn't been seen recently. 
Instead, other people who've worked in the theater claim that there's a different presence haunting the staff, actors, and dancers inside. Uh, it's reported that the ballet dancers who were part of a performance of Billy Elliot at the Imperial claim to have been bothered by a ghost they named Fred. The spirit, they say, is busy haunting the girls' dressing room and creeping out the young occupants there. I guess it's Fred the pervert ghost. One young dancer reported seeing a bathroom door moving on its own while she was sitting by herself late one night doing homework. So pervy Fred's checking them out. <laughs> Next up, we have the Lyceum Theater. The legendary dancer and choreographer Bob Fosse may haunt the Lyceum if the actors and crew are to be believed. According to Playbill, Fosse was also a well-known and well-regarded director, leaving an outside mark on the already pretty outsized world of Broadway theater. People claim to have experienced something supernatural at the Lyceum report hearing odd noises from the catwalk the smell of cigarette, and a weird, almost unexplainable presence in the seats. Smoking is especially noteworthy, as it's now banned entirely in Hollywood theaters and other indoor spaces in the city. Fosse, however, was rarely seen without a cigarette, while he was still on this side of existence. While he was alive, Fosse also told actor Roger Rees that he enjoyed getting a view of the theater from the balcony, where he would overlook the entire space in all its glory. So what could be keeping Fosse at the Lyceum, we wonder? According to page six, it might be some lingering personal connection. In 2015, the theater hosted The Visit, a show starring another Broadway great, Cheetah Rivera. Fosse was close to Rivera, as well as co-stars Roger Reese and Rivera's understudy, Donna McKinney. McKechnie, sorry. Some speculate that their presence may have called Fosse back for yet another show at the Lyceum. During the 2010 run of the Scottsboro Boys, Coleman Domingo said, the Friday of our last weekend, things were happening backstage and on stage with the lights and the computer equipment. We definitely felt we were in the presence of some ghosts. And probably were. Next, we have the Palace Theater. The legendary Palace Theater is reputed to have more ghosts than any other Broadway house. Among them is a mysterious figure who passes open doorways late at night. A child ghost who plays peekaboo in the mezzanine and a musician dressed in white who appears in the orchestra pit. Now, notable amongst these apparitions is a fellow by the name of Louis Borsellino. Sorry. He was a vaudeville performer in the early days of the Palace Theater who made his name as an acrobat. One night he was going through a tightrope routine when tragedy struck. Borsellino fell and, according to some versions of the story, died right there in the theater. Thereafter, people in the space where he fell have reported seeing the unfortunate man endlessly reenacting his death, complete with the lurid accident and appropriately frightening screams. Yet, as a 1935 article from the New York Times reports, Borsellino fell 18 feet and was badly hurt, but wasn't killed. Still, the legend persists that someone can be spotted walking a ghostly tightrope above the stage of the Palace Theater. Rumor has it that anyone who sees the specter is doomed to die in the near future. However, there may be, they seem to, how, however many there may be, sorry, they seem to have been quiet in recent years, as reports of their activities have dropped off sharply. However, during the run of 
of 2011's Annie revival, actor Ryan Van Dengum claimed that when alone in a dressing room one night, he thought he heard a voice called Judy. Now, the queen of the palace's celebrity revenants is said to be the great Judy Garland herself, but who may have been calling her and why must remain a Broadway mystery. Though the Palace Theater is rife with named ghosts, it's also said to be full of yet more unnamed spirits. For some, considering all the tales of hauntings that have been reported there, it could be that the Palace is one of the most haunted theaters in all of Broadway. Legend says the orchestra pit in the Palace is haunted by the utterly spooky apparition of a cellist wearing a white dress. An office in the theater contains further frights, as people sitting in the room have reported the sudden appearance of a man in a brown suit who walks quickly past the office's open doorway. When they go to investigate, no one's there, of course. A sad-faced girl's been spotted in the balcony, while a ghostly boy plays with his toy trucks in the theater's mezzanine level. Perhaps all of the ghosts are here because the palace is one of the older theaters still operating on Broadway. Uh, according to... Uh, curbed uh, magazine. It was built in 1913 and quickly became known as one of the most coveted spots for performers to make their mark, with acts like Fred Astaire, Mae West, Frank Sinatra, and more gracing the stage. It's no wonder that to play at the palace meant a performer had finally secured a place for themselves in the difficult industry. Perhaps some of those people have achieved a measure of glory at the Palace Theater, and those people don't want to leave, ever. Now uh, I'm going to do the Hilton Theater. Uh, the Lyric Theater, it was, it was formerly known as the Lyric Theater. Actually, <laughs> let me back up. The Lyric Theater, also known as the Hilton Theater, or Ford Center, it goes by all three names, was once witness to a notorious incident involving Broadway actors, a rapt audience, and the appearance, they say, of a spirit so frightening that one woman lost consciousness. Said specter is reputed to belong to one Clyde Fitch. According to Ghosts and Murders of Manhattan, Fitch was a well-known and prolific playwright whose latest work, The City, premiered at the Lyric Theater on December 21st, 1909. At that time, he'd written more than 60 plays altogether, though The City was to be his last. That's because Fitch had died that summer, well before his final play ended. Yet if the legend is to be believed, he was still there to enjoy the acclaim. As the story goes, the cast was taking in the applause of the audience at the end of their performance when they were joined by none other than Fitch himself. He's said to have made his way to the center of the stage and taken a bow before disappearing in front of the entire theater audience. A number of women screamed and fainted at the sight of the playwright enjoying one last curtain call. And lastly, I'm going to do one. It's not actually a Broadway theater, but... You know, you think about this, it's a music hall, it's in New York, it's very famous, and it has a slew of hauntings. This particular place is Radio City Music Hall. Though it's technically not Broadway, like I said, uh, like some of the other theaters, Radio, Muse Radio City Music Hall is still part of the vibrant and spirited art scene of New York City that's deeply connected to Broadway and the rest of the city. And like its fellow venues only a couple of blocks away, Radio City Music Hall is also said to be full of ghosts. Many of the stories of haunted Radio City Music Hall center on Samuel Roxy Rothafel, 
the theater impresario who brought the Rockettes to fame at the venue, which opened in 1932. According to Radio City Music Hall, the place is the largest indoor theater in the world with a custom-built pipe organ and grand interior design. Could the razzle-dazzle of the hall still be resonating with the energetic Roxy? According to America's Haunted Road Trip, he's been spotted strolling about the theater with a beautiful woman, even though he died in 1936, only a few short years after the hall opened. The pair are said to always disappear into thin air before they reach their seats in the audience. Ushers also say that his seat is always down at the end of the night, even when all the others have been flipped. Rothfeld's former apartment in the building, which is empty but still maintained by staff, is also reputed to have some ghostly energy. Well, I blew through all those theaters pretty quickly, actually. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to actually talk about some of the uh, maybe lesser-known theaters and some of the hauntings that occur in them. Uh, let's start with the Lancaster Performing Arts Center in the Antelope Valley. It opened in 1991, from the spring of 92 till the fall of 99. Uh, this person who is writing the story says, I spent a great deal of time in that theater as a performer, usher, patron, and finally as a backstage crew member. Being so new, you wouldn't expect this theater to have a ghost, but that's not the case. While the theater was under construction, several important people in the community were given a tour. An elderly lady named Viola was in the group. As the theater was still being built, the orchestra pit, which would be, uh, house a platform that could be used, that could raise to stage level, sorry, and lowered to orchestra level, was still a huge gaping hole waiting for the machinery to be installed. Poor Viola got too close to the edge. She lost her balance and went plummeting to the bottom of the unfinished pit. She was rushed to the hospital and died soon after. But that wasn't the end of her story. Viola said to haunt the orchestra pit and the catwalks of the theater. Having spent, uh, the, sorry, let me back up. Uh, the actor says, having spent my entire teenage life there in a few uh, years into my 20s, I've had a few personal experiences with Viola. I would come into the theater during the day to practice using the light board. Having the entire auditorium to myself, I would hear footsteps, but no one was there. Speakers that were not turned on would snap and crackle. Whenever I had to go to the galleries or the spot booth, which was accessible only by climbing a series of ladders and crawling along the catwalks, I would also uh, let me start again, sorry. Uh, it says, I would always have the strangest feeling that I was being watched. Odd noises were everywhere. Whenever I went into the orchestra pit, while the platform was at stage level, and I could see down into the bottom of the pit, my stomach would always twist into knots of pure terror. I hated it down there. Uh, Viola has never done anything malevolent, as the entire staff can verify. In fact, they're rather proud of their resident spook, and whenever anything odd happens or something goes missing, people will shake their heads and say, well, there's Viola again. Okay, another theater I wanted to talk about is uh, the Paris Opera House. 
Now, the reason why is because it's famous for one thing. The Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> as funny as it sounds, it's true. Uh, in the early 20th century, a mysterious apartment and by some accounts, a male corpse were found in the opera theater, the Palais Garnier, inspiring the 1910 novel that in turn inspired a silent film and the smash Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. The theater, which has been renovated several times since the 19th century, acquired a reputation for lavish productions and sets. But curiously, although the well-known Phantom has brought the Paris opera worldwide fame, there is really no serious Phantom sightings ever on record. Now, a chandelier did fall in 1896, killing a construction worker and supplying the famous scene in the novel. But as theater residents uh, go, the, the most notable one is actually the ghost of an older woman who committed suicide in the 19th century and is said to roam the streets outside the opera house searching for the man who jilted her. Um, next up, I'm going to talk about the Palace Theater again, but this is the Palace Theater in Los Angeles, not New York. And the oldest movie theater in L.A., the Palace has a third balcony that was once closed off from the rest of the theater for racial segregation and became legendary as the site of ghost sightings, with onstage performers seeing mysterious figures in the balcony when locked doors should have prevented anyone from, appear from appearing up there. The palace, known until 1926 as the Orpheum, was once one of the premier theaters on the famed Orpheum circuit of vaudeville houses and saw its share of live performances before transforming itself into a silent movie venue. Over the years, audience members and theater staff reported the figure of a woman dressed in white lace crossing the stage during performances, then disappearing into the wings, never to be seen again. Uh, I'm going to go into London now for the Theatre Royal in Drury Lane. Standing on the spot that's been occupied by three previous theaters since 1663, the Theatre Royal Drury Lane, known as Drury Lane to the Londoners, should be one of the likeliest spots for a spook. Sure enough, one of London's most famous ghosts, the Man in Grey, is regularly reported here wearing riding boots, a powdered wig, and tricorn hat. The story goes that the apparition is the spirit of the fellow whose skeletal remains were found in a wallet passageway here in the 19th century. Kind of makes you wonder what else might be lurking in the walls. So on a more positive note, though, the Drury Lane is where Rodgers and Hammerstein's Golden Age musicals had their London premieres, including Oklahoma, South Pacific, and The King and I. Now, speaking of Orpheum Theater, there actually is an Orpheum Theater. This one is in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, most of the seats are at the Memphis Orpheum are good ones, but you might want to steer clear of seat C5. That's where Mary, a see-through apparition, has been seen enjoying rehearsals and performances at, their, at the former vaudeville venue. But as the Grand Opera House at the corner of Main and Beale Streets in 1890, the theater joined the Orpheum circuit in 1907, but burned in 1923. The new Orpheum was built on the site of the Grand at twice the size. It was converted into a movie theater in the 1940s, then began hosting tour, touring productions and concerts in the 70s. In 1984, the refurbished Orpheum reopened and has been seen and has seen productions as big as The Phantom of the Opera and Les Miserables. 
and acts as and acts as intimate as Jerry Seinfeld and Tony Bennett. Uh, in New Zealand, we have the St. James Theater. It's curious that the haunted theater phenomenon is found mostly in European and Eurocentric cities, and even in New Zealand, thousands of miles from the lights of Broadway and the West End, a theater teems with alleged paranormal activity. The St. James Theater was built in 1913 and was initially a venue for silent movies. Throughout the 20th century, the theater was home to film, live theater, ranging in quality from Shakespeare to minstrel shows, and other entertainments. But perhaps no single theater has such a wide array as such. Let me try that again. Sorry, folks. But perhaps no single theater has such a wide array of freaky sightings. Yuri, a Russian acrobat who supposedly fell to his death during a performance, is often credited for the theater's lights turning on and off. The Wailing Woman was, the story goes, an actress who was booed off the stage and consequently did herself in. Oh, excuse me, it's getting late. I apologize for that. She's now blamed not only for mysterious cries heard in the space, but also for a series of calamities that have befallen actresses at the St. James, including falls, sprains, and performance endangering head colds. Another legend has it that during World War II, a boys' choir sang its last concert at the St. James before departing New Zealand on a ship that was never seen again. The boys' ghostly singing is now heard by stagehands and others. Going back to London, we have the Adelphi Theatre. The present-day Adelphi is a relative kid among London playhouses, built in the 1930s, built in 1930 specifically, but theaters have stood on this site since the early 19th century, and the place has a paranormal pedigree to match its age. The ghost of actor William Terrace, who was stabbed to death on the stage door, at the stage door in 1897, is said to haunt the Adelphi. According to legend, Terrace's understudy had a dream the night before the actor's murder in which Terrace lay bleeding on his dressing room floor. Theater was home to Noel Coward's Words and Music in 1932 and hosted the London premiere of Stephen Sondheim's Little Night Music in 1975. Now, I would uh, be remiss if I didn't include Grauman's Chinese Theater in Los Angeles. Uh, in a story that would fit right into a film noir classic such as Sunset Boulevard or Double Indemnity, Hollywood lore says that actor Victor Killian walks the, the forecourt of this iconic LA landmark, searching for the man who beat him to death outside the theater, which has been the site of lavish movie openings since Tinseltown's early days. You can do some searching of your own outside the theater, where the cement handprints, footprints, and signatures of Hollywood stars have adorned the sidewalk for decades. The theater was the site of the Academy Award ceremonies in 1944, 45, and 46, and is next door to the Dolby Theater, where the Oscars celebration is currently held each year. Now, here's, here's one that I'd love to go to. I've, ever since I was a kid, I wanted to go to this one. This is the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in Ashland, Oregon. From Royal Ghost traipsing through Macbeth and Hamlet to the knavish Sprite Puck in the Midsummer Night's Dream and the mysterious magical Ariel in The Tempest, William Shakespeare provided the world with a small army of supernatural supporting roles. But the Bard of Avon's work is seldom as downright terrifying as the grounds of Lithia Park, home to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, which offers a mix of indoor and outdoor theater spaces. 
The ghost of a young girl murdered in the 19th century is said to walk the grounds of the park. Not impressed? Visitors to the park have told local police that the girl is surrounded by a mysterious blue light that enshrouds onlookers and drives them to hysterical fright. Imagine that. Well, having flown solo, it's obvious that uh, our podcast runs much longer with the girls here uh, without their inevitable distractions and good times. Uh, this podcast uh, normally, for what I did, would have lasted at least an hour and a half to two hours. Instead, you get about 48 minutes of fun for me. I hope it was fun. Um, and that's all I've got tonight. <laughs> but if you uh, listen to the podcast, I want you to listen for any EVPs that might pop up. I'm the only one here in the room. So if you hear something, someone talking besides me, noises, whatever, let me know. If I don't catch them, hopefully you will. They've been happening pretty frequently, and I would love to catch more. You guys can help. That would be awesome. So listen to the, listen to the show. If you catch anything, send me a message. Remember, you can email me at whatinthepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can talk to me directly through Messenger at Kent Whittington. Uh, you can even tweet me at Kent Whittington on Twitter. Um, just, yeah, give me a buzz. Let me know what you hear. Also, if you are a UFO experiencer, I would love to hear stories from you. Maybe even get you on the show for that UFO conference I was talking about. And if you're interested, you can contact me the same ways. Also, I forgot to mention, you can also leave a message through our message app on the, uh, on our website, which would be whatever podcast you're listening to. Really. You'll find the link at the bottom of the description. Click that message link. It'll take you right to our message site and you can leave us a direct message. In the meantime, I think that's going to do it for tonight. I hope you enjoyed this, uh, Bless the banter. And uh, we hope to see you next week with Adriana and Tracy with me. And we'll do something else that'll tickle your fancy, hopefully. In the meantime, have a good night. Stay spooky. And of course, cue the gremlin. What in the Podcast is a part of the What in the Podcast Network and is available on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other great podcast formats. You can find us on Facebook at the What in the Podcast Facebook group. If you have a great story idea or have a personal paranormal event that you want to share with us, email us at whatinthepodcast at gmail.com with your story, or you can leave us a voice message by clicking the link in the episode description. If you like what you're hearing, please don't forget to leave us a review and rate us five stars. It doesn't seem like much, but it helps us more than you can imagine. What in the Podcast is also made possible thanks to our sponsors and listeners like you. Thanks for listening.